Welcome to the Audit 15 Fund podcast. My goal with this podcast is to bring relevant internal audit topics to the table at least every 15 days. Today, we're going to be talking about the largest lottery scam in the United States. And to talk about that topic, I have the honor to have as my guest, Rob Sand. Rob is the Iowa State Auditor and a former prosecutor who helped to prosecute the person who perpetrated the fraud. So welcome, Rob, to the podcast. It's a pleasure to have you on. You bet. Thanks, John. Happy to be here. Yeah, absolutely. So the case happened in 2010 and unfolded during that decade. And it got featured in American Greed. There's a book about it. A lot of people may know well enough about the case, but maybe some people don't. So for those who are not as familiar with the case, can you kind of give us a background on the case and when you got involved in the case as well. Sure. Sure. Happy to, John. Um, uh, yeah, for the folks who were listening to that question, you're absolutely right. You know, the, 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 if you want to read the shortest long version of what happened, there's a story from the New York times magazine called the man who cracked the lottery, uh, that gives you the short version. And then Terry Rich, who's the former um, CEO of the Iowa Lottery wrote a book called The $80 Billion Gamble. And I just uh, wrote a book about it called uh, The the Winning Ticket, um, which is about the whole case, gets into lots of detail about the investigation, the prosecution. Um, pick up any of those uh, wherever you like. But long story short is, is kind of tough to do with this one. It's crazy. Uh, every time I tell the story, I still have a hard time believing that all of it is true. Um, so I got I, I got into the case in well let's let's go back you because you said 2010. So let's go back to 2010. 2010, somebody in November, just before Thanksgiving, buys a lottery ticket worth 16 million bucks at a gas station. And the Iowa lottery is out there for the next year saying, hey, everybody, turn your ticket in, turn your ticket in, check your tickets. Who's got 16 million bucks sitting in their pocket? You know, we want to give it away. That's our job. Come and come and get your money. But nobody comes and nobody comes and nobody comes. You have up to a year to claim. And so there's a lot of confusion. Why? Why don't people want this money? Did somebody lose the ticket? What's going on? Probably 11 months out from the date of the purchase, the phone rings at the Iowa lottery and it's a guy who says he's got the ticket. And sure enough, he gives them the 15 digit serial code on the back of the ticket that only the person who has the ticket would know, right? And they call him up and, and so they say, oh, well, okay, congratulations. We're so happy to hear from you. You know, this has been a long process. You know, what took you so long to call? And I think he said something like, oh, I just, you know, checked the wrong coat pocket or something like that, you know. And um, they were careful about getting more information from him. They said, oh, well, you know, it must be a momentous day. Uh, what, what, you know, what do you remember about that day when you bought this ticket? What were you wearing at the time? And uh, he says he's wearing, you know, like a sports coat and maybe flannel pants or something like that. And he's this lawyer from Canada who was in town on business, older man in his late 60s, early 70s. And the Iowa lottery takes that information and says, okay, well, thank you. Um, we'll get back to you. And later on, they call him back. Of course, they knew that his description of himself didn't match the purchaser because the Iowa lottery goes out 
And shortly after someone purchases a high value ticket, they will pull the surveillance footage from wherever it's sold. And that allows them to see who the purchaser is, just a little bit of added security, right? So they have this guy who plainly has the ticket, but also plainly was not the purchaser because they're looking at the video and the guy wearing the video in the video making the purchase is 40s-ish, maybe early 50s, very big, heavy set guy wearing a black leather jacket. So they call this guy back in Canada. They say, yeah, we, we know that's not you. Um, so what's, what's going on here? And eventually he just kind of poof, disappears, withdraws his claim, doesn't press the issue any further. And so they're confused again until the day before, maybe it's the day of, either the day before or the day of the claim is going to expire when, you know, as soon as that expiration dates hit, that, that ticket's not worth 16 million anymore. The actual physical ticket is delivered to their offices, handed in by a law firm in Des Moines, representing a lawyer in New York. And the back of the ticket as the winner is signed, this guy from Canada who had made the claim. But it's he's signing as the president of a trust in the nation of Belize. <laughs> so... They look at this and they're like, okay, this guy isn't the purchaser. We know that because he tried to claim that he was, but he didn't match the purchase. He, he clearly has the ticket. It's in front of us right now. That is the actual authentic ticket. But now he's trying to claim it on behalf of a trust in Belize. This is just weird. And to their credit, the Iowa lottery asks some questions. They say, look, you know, we look forward to paying this out to you. We just, we want to make sure that we know what's going on. So one of the things that we need to know in addition to other information is who purchased the ticket and everyone who possessed it on the way to it being claimed. And they asked that question, by the way, John, because some people are not allowed to purchase lottery tickets. For example, employees of the Iowa lottery, uh, vendors to the Iowa lottery, people who work on company or for companies who do work for the Iowa lottery. Those people are called prohibited purchasers. And it's, you know, for public trust, they're not allowed to um, buy tickets or claim them. And so they, you know, they ask for this information and the people who are claiming it are saying, well, we don't want to give you that information. And they say, well, you need to give it to us. And the per people again, who want the $16 million say, you're going to pay us the money. This is a bare instrument, meaning I possess it. Therefore it is the money's legally mine, or we are going to sue you. And I love this part. Love it. This is before I'm involved. So again, compliments to the Iowa lottery. They say, great, sue us. <laughs> and the reason that that's great is uh, for folks who haven't been involved in a lawsuit before, once you file a lawsuit, there's a process called discovery, which is where each side can compel the other side to provide information that's relevant to the case. And so the Iowa lottery is looking at a lawsuit saying, oh, well, we've been wondering who bought this ticket and who, who possessed it. Discovery will be just a fine place for us to figure out who it was that possessed it. Uh, so they, they called the bluff of these folks. So they, and so they back off and they say, never mind. And they withdraw their claim, meaning they are deciding somebody's anonymity is worth 16 million bucks to them. That's pretty crazy. That is when they refer the case for criminal investigation. My boss works on it for a little over two years, maybe two and a half years. Uh, and then as he's retiring, plop the file lands on my desk um this guy uh uh was a mentor to me 
Um, he was, he kind of told me, look, I know you'll run out all the leads that we have. You'll try to do everything that's left to make sure that when we put this thing to bed with nothing happening, that we tried everything we could. I said, yep, I will do that. Thanks a lot. At the time, you know, certainly didn't expect it to become anything. Um, it was a little bit of a mystery, but you know, we didn't even know for sure that any crimes had at that point been committed. And so that's when the criminal investigation began. Um, long story of that is we unwound what is, as you mentioned, the largest lottery rigging scheme in American history, touches uh, six states. Uh, I want to say, I want to say, if I recall correctly, $25 million in face value for the tickets involved. Um, and just a, a pretty a pretty wild story that included not only um, a corrupt insider and his justice of the peace brother and his formerly high flying best friend businessman but also bigfoot hunters like people who actually go out in the woods expecting to find bigfoot so yeah crazy story crazy <laughs> story yeah yeah so many points that you touched there not suspicious at all that you have a law firm in des moines representing a right. law firm in new york that's representing a trust and belief <laughs> and, right Right. Not, not not suspicious at all. <laughs> and, right. Yeah. And like you mentioned, a uh, good point on like the chain of custody of the ticket. Employees are not supposed to go in uh, or lottery employees. And in fact, the, the person who was ultimately convicted was a, uh, an employee or a former employee of the multi-state lottery association. So. Right. Important point, a vendor. Um, sort of to the lottery, not a, not an Iowa lottery employee, but yeah, Eddie Kipton, who was our mastermind here, I worked for the multi-state lottery association, which is, I guess you could say a conglomerate, uh, that helps run lottery games in 38 states and Canadian provinces. Yeah. And the IT, or if I remember correctly, information security director of, for the multi-state lottery association. So. That's right. That's right. Which at the, at the time when we finally got a tip that maybe it was him, we had, we, we did basically the last thing that we could think of to do, to try to get information. We released the video of the person who purchased the ticket and a couple of people then came forward and they were like, that's Eddie Tipton. Our uh, understanding at the time was that he was director of security, which we were thinking was like, you know, um, sort of a police type, uh, job, not information security, not that he was, as he actually was, writing the program that picks random numbers or is supposed to pick random numbers to pick lottery tickets. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, pretty crazy story. Yeah, absolutely. And we'll get into the details of, a little bit of the details of how he did that. But before we go there, I do want to ask the question, which is a, a broader question here. To you, as you think about the case, what was the most challenging part of the case? Um, there were a lot of tough spots for legal issues because some, you know, by the time we were trying the case or, or maybe wrapping it up is a better way to put it. The first jackpots that they had won were 10 years old at that point. Um, and so some of the evidence was pretty old trying to get a way to wrap it all together. Um, that was appropriate, which we were able to do. and. Some of the legal arguments were odd because, you know, um, keep in mind that this was very much a 21st century inside job, lots of computers, 
uh, oriented entirely around code and computer files. And, and Iowa's theft statutes are from the 1970s. You know, they are not at theft and fraud for that matter. They're not particularly designed for um, modern stuff. And so we had to be careful and put a lot of time and thought into which pieces of, this, of what statute would, would apply best and try to make those arguments. Um, but I would say if I was going to pick a single most difficult piece, it was actually the trial. So when we only knew about the Iowa ticket, uh, Eddie Tipton exercised his statutory right in Iowa to trial within 90 days of indictment. So we hurried to get him indicted, and then he made us hurry to put him on trial. And it ended up being within six months. He waived 90-day speedy trial and then reasserted it just a few days later. So again, we couldn't bump it past another three, three months, which I have never heard of anybody doing before. But we certainly were thinking, he's making us hustle here because he doesn't want to give us too much time to investigate. And But of course, you know, we are... So just so focused on trying to figure out what happened with the Iowa ticket that we don't have time to be looking at other states at that point. Um, and so we had to go to trial a little bit on the seat of our pants, you know, uh, kind of building the airplane as you're flying it and convince the jury uh, not only that he was the purchaser um, and that he had passed the ticket to someone else with the intent to see the lottery, but also that he had rigged the jackpot, that he that he knew what the winning numbers were going to be uh, before they actually um, were drawn. And so that, that trial, uh, was tough. There was national media coverage just as we were starting, uh, a piece on CBS this morning saying, you know, there's a pretty, pretty powerful argument for reasonable doubt here. I don't think, I don't think they've really got the electro the electronic evidence they'd like to have. And that was, you know, I heard about that the morning that it aired as we were about to start listening to, uh, evidence from our witnesses. So yeah, it was a, that was a tough week, but it, it, it came out great. We got two convictions from the jury. Yeah. Yeah. It's a bit of a chess game, that legal procedure, like you mentioned, you know, they, they, yep. they tried to rush you through the, to gather the evidence. So it's, you know, you're playing chess there to try to figure it out. And, you know, so we'll, we'll get into like how he did it. And you mentioned the uh, random number generator here. So the lottery has very strict controls in place for how they draw numbers for a ticket. There's a computer somewhere that has no access to an outside network. Only a few people have access to that computer. That room yep. is monitor uh, or should be monitored 24 seven. <laughs> exactly uh, right. And he was still able to pull it off. And from what I understand, he put a malicious code into that computer and he was able to not be caught on camera somehow doing that. So thinking about those controls and what fail, right? Uh, do you think that if he had not been greedy in trying to claim this prize with uh, trust in Belize, do you think he maybe he would ever get caught because it seems like you know odd all odds were in his favor until he tried to be greedy and claimed the ticket yeah you, you know uh no matter what would have happened in this case there's a lot of evidence that shows that as people become more and more comfortable in their wrongdoing and their embezzlement or their fraud uh they take greater and greater risks as they also uh typically steal greater and greater amounts of money and so that's that's the thing that often trips people up is they they build a false sense of confidence um, and they think, oh, I've been doing this for a while. Nobody knows what I'm doing. 
Um, and so, yeah, I mean, eventually something would have happened. Now, if he had not tried to claim it, well, and I'll tell you, as the story goes, as he says the story, at the point that those claims were getting made, he was not in control or even in contact with the people who were making the claims. Because keep in mind, you know, it went to the guy in New York who, and the guy in New York just knew the guy in Canada. And it makes sense. It's logical that they would have each person down the wire only knowing the one contact behind <clears throat> because the more they know, the more dangerous they are. So I, I, I believe it. it. It's logical. It doesn't excuse, it doesn't make it not criminal for um, the, the two people involved who knew about how it was getting rigged, which is Eddie and his best buddy from Texas, Robert Rose. But as the story goes, Eddie brought the ticket. He, he bought it on his way down to Texas, uh, saw Robert there, gave it to Robert, and that Robert then brought it to um, a guy in Texas, Robert Sonfeld, who then brought it to the guy up in Canada, uh, Philip Johnston. And so as Philip Johnston is making these claims, Eddie Tipton is just sort of sitting there hoping that the money gets paid out at some point, but he doesn't know the people who are involved in the claim, presumably. And again, and that makes sense. And it also doesn't change whether or not he's culpable for their actions. Um, so, you know, it's hard to say, um, you know, one of his other problems was he had bought a couple of other tickets that same day, uh, himself. And so, you know, buying them himself was a pretty big risk, <clears throat> but yeah, I mean, there were a number of mistakes along the way that they had to make, that made it a lot easier for us to figure out what was going on. Yeah. 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 If, you know, <clears throat> if he had had, if he had just, um, put forefront in his mind that I need someone to claim this ticket who looks like me because the Iowa lottery goes out and is going to know who the purchaser looks like. Then maybe that person could have said, Oh yeah, it was me. I wore a leather jacket and blah, 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 blah. And I'm just a big guy, you know, and then maybe they would have been all right. Maybe it would have been paid out. Who knows? Right. Right. Yeah. It seems like they put a little too much thought into it. <laughs> Yeah, 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 yep. yeah. If it seemed a little more legit, maybe you know the Iowa lottery would not have questioned as much. <laughs> That's right. That's so, right. Uh, one of the things that I think it's very interesting from the case, you know, there are many interesting things from the case, but one of the things that I think is the most interesting is how after you're able to uh, convict him, I believe uh, you had the the a coworker, uh, Eddie Tipton's coworker, who was able to confirm that yes this is the voice of eddie tipton from the video that you guys had obtained one of the things that you did is after that conviction you're able to connect previous winnings in like you mentioned at the beginning of the interview here in six states i'm like how'd you do that like was there yeah was it a process of like going through facebook accounts and linkedin or what was the uh, how'd you guys do that we had LinkedIn evidence in the case. We had Facebook evidence in the case. It was really kind of all of the above. You know, we were looking, um, as, as we progressed, we were able to make much more specific requests to state lotteries, you know, cause what we did at first was, okay, we, uh, had a tip that came in before he was sentenced after trial 
you know, that his brother had won a lottery somewhere out West. Maybe it was Colorado. And we were told who we could call who would know more. And so, you know, we followed that up. Once we had a tip and, and knew that something had happened in Colorado at that point, we said, all right, you know, let's ask state lotteries for any winners from the state of Iowa or Texas uh, of relatively large tickets, relatively large jackpots, you know, from 2005 to the present. And as we would get those files in, you know, if, they, if, if, if for example, Kansas said, yes, actually, we did have two winners from Texas. Here they are. We would run that through contacts. We would run that through Facebook friends, try to find any connections between those winners' names and anyone that uh, Eddie or his friend or his brother knew. And, uh, you know, it was a long, arduous process, but that was kind of what we had to do. We were sifting uh, sifting through the sands, trying to find those little, little chunks of gold. Um, it was a lot of work. Uh, I think we went through four, if I remember right, it was like 45,000, uh, jackpot tickets that we had to sort one way or another. And so of course, again, we weren't looking at each of them individually, but we were using markers on each of them, such as the state of residence of the winner to try to sift most efficiently to find things that look the most suspicious. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Great work. Uh, on the on the prosecutor's team in finding that out and making all of those connections. Well, and we had a lot of good people um, working on the case. Don Smith, uh, who was a DCI agent in Iowa. Matt Anderson, who was a DCI agent in Iowa. Uh, Joe Willoughby and Tina Salisbury, who were intelligence agents, did a lot of good work. Uh, obviously, uh, you know, uh, Terry at the Iowa Lottery was very supportive. And Rob Porter, who was uh, chief counsel there at the time, was also very helpful. And so we had a good team of people who, who, you know, wanted to get to the bottom of this. We were having fun, but we wanted to get our jobs done and do them right. Yeah, absolutely. So last question here, Rob, and we'll sh completely shift gears from the case. Uh, after the case, you became the uh, state auditor here in Iowa, and you've been leading that team here for the last few years. So since the audience here is auditors, <laughs> Uh, what message would you have for auditors just in general? Yeah. If you could just give one message to them, what would it be? Uh, try to keep others away from temptation. And I, and I, if I was going to pick a sentence, that's my sentence. And there's, there's two reasons why, right? You know, a lot of times we, we think about the world and I just, this goes back to one, one experience. I remember growing up in Decorah up in Northeast Iowa. Um, I remember asking my dad, we were on water street and we were going somewhere and he said, told me to lock my car door as I was getting out of the car. I just remembered asking him, dad, how come you lock up? Like, why do you always lock everything up? Cause my buddy Andy, you know, they didn't lock their house at night. His dad would leave his keys in the ignition, in the truck, in the driveway every night. And I, and it was odd to me. I just thought like, well, either there's bad people in the world and that's dangerous or there aren't, and we're just being silly and overprotective. And my dad said something that changed the way I thought about these kinds of things from there on. He said, we just don't want to tempt people. And it totally changed the way I looked at it. Because I used to think of it as like, well, there's, there's either a person who's going to steal your stuff, or there's a person who isn't, you know, one or the other. But he's totally right. Temptation is something that we all uh, face in different ways um, throughout our life. We can be in different circumstances. 
all kinds of stuff like that. And so the, the, the job for anyone in the accountability industry, um, I think, is helping other people to avoid temptation. And if we think about it that way, and I think also if we talk to the people who are we're trying to help avoid temptation that way, it becomes less of an issue about whether or not we trust someone, right? Because we want to trust everyone. We don't want them to feel like they aren't trusted. And so a lot of times people say, oh, that's just, that's John. John would never do that. He is such a good guy. We don't need to worry about it. Well, let's not ask ourselves if John is a good guy. Let's ask ourselves, could we be leaving John in a situation here where in one of the toughest times of his life, he feels tempted to take advantage of the situation? And if the answer to that question is yes, then we need to change what we're doing instead of just saying, we don't need to worry about him. He's a great guy. You know, it's, it's all about what can we re- do to reduce the odds of temptation? What can we do to reduce uh, opportunity? And I think that at the end of the day is really the best place to focus because I think it's easier for everyone to understand it and not have it be a personal issue. Yeah, absolutely. Definitely agree. Think about the fraud triangle, the opportunity, right? Opportunity is definitely one that internal auditors or auditors in general can help reduce the opportunity for perpetrators. So really appreciate you being on the podcast, Rob. For those who want to connect with you, what is the best way for them to do so? Easiest ways to find me are Twitter and Facebook at Rob Sand, I-A, R-O-B-S-A-N-D-I-A. Awesome. Thank you so much. All right. Thanks, John. 